Adam ribs. That's what I'm having. So this is good. Well, I have an announcement to make that actually conveniently rolls right into the topic of this morning's text and this morning's message, and that is on November 3rd through the 5th, our men's ministry is going to be doing a, a men's retreat just uh, three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, up in Lake Tahoe. So I just want to encourage you guys, if you um, have the availability, and maybe you wives can encourage your husband to go. It's just an amazing time to get connected. As you know, Lake Tahoe is one of the most beautiful places in California, um, just stunning vistas and views, and there's hiking, and there's biking. Guys went sailing one year. Um, some guys went golfing, and then um, I had the privilege of leading a, a team of guys who repelled off a cliff, which is crazy, but it was fun. Um, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's just a great time to get connected. So that's November 3rd through the 5th. And here's the thing. The, the, the cabin that we have um, is limited in its capacity, so we, we can only take 40 guys. So there's sign-ups in the back, um, and it's the first 40 guys who sign up and pay who, who get to go. And so it's 120 bucks. It's two nights, all your food. Again, I um, want to encourage you to go. It's a, it's a, it's a good time. The last time we were there was 13 or 14 years ago, same place. Well, that kind of leads into uh, an experience that I had up there with a number of you who still are here. Um, that is, I led the excursion to go rappelling off that cliff that I was telling you about, um, 80 or 90 feet high. And um, I don't know if you've ever done that before, but leaning out over a cliff, over a chasm, is, is kind of a scary thing. And um, here, just to, just to give you a visual here, just a couple of pictures. Um, believe it or not, that, that's that's... Dean Thorne, Dean Thorne, I think you were 43 in that picture. My, how time has flown, brother. And uh, there's Scott. I know Scott's probably not here. I think they're away this week, but I think he was 34 at the time. Um, my, how time flies. That's good. Just a little visual for you there. Um, but when we went, there was, this, there was this, this big guy by the name of Matt, and uh, has since moved away. He's about 6'5", uh, construction worker, I think, and um, just big, brawny, Six five, um, he had an earring in the left earring, not or ear. Um, not that earrings were bad. It's just, you know, he's just kind of intimidating. He's intimidating for me. So so tall, brawny earring, kind of reminds me of a pirate. And uh, <laughs> and he uh, said, "I want to go rappelling with you guys." And uh, just a man's man, brawny man. And so okay, so we're all up on top of this this uh, this rock overlooking uh, Tahoe, and and he harnessed up. Just, you guys will remember this, and uh, clicked into the the the, the, uh, the rope, and um, and he started to get close to the edge of the cliff. You know, it's just it was such a paradox. Was, here's a guy, huge, thinks strong, and he just couldn't bring himself to lean back. And at one point, like I just don't remember which leg it was, it starts like he starts up and down like a sewing machine. Like this guy's really nervous. And he tried, and he tried, and finally he's just like, let me try later. And so he got off, and he watched some other guys go down. And, of course, there's no way he's going to be beat. And so he gets back on there, and the same thing happens. I think he tried it three times. Three times he tried to lean out over that chasm and trust a cord that's no bigger in diameter than my pinky, right? And um, he just couldn't do it. Uh, he just gave up. He was, he was humbled. And I, again, I, no judgment, right? It's a scary thing to, to lean out over a 90-foot cliff and, and trust your entire being to a little piece of cord. Well, that illustrates something that is going to, I'm going to come back to as kind of the image, prevailing image of this message. And that is, you can say you trust something with your words, 
You can sing about trusting something in your songs, and you can even think ahead of time that I trust this. But it's not until you're tested by real-life experience when you actually suspend your entire life by something that you know, I really do trust this. That is when trust is tested, when everything is on the line, then you find out what you secretly believe in here, that is the secret becomes visible if you're willing to hang out and trust something and hold your life with it. That is what reveals what's really in your heart. And that's what tests do. They, they, they reveal what's in the heart. And that's, most tests are, are an attempt to find out the reality of things, whether it's a physical fitness test, like those of you who are in the military, it's like, you know, you find out how per, strong a person really is. Do they meet the goals or the requirements? That's what it's supposed to find out, the reality of one's strength. Or an academic test is supposed to find out how much you really understand or how much you know or how well you can synthesize information. That's what tests are supposed to do. It's supposed to make known the reality. Well, the same is true of spiritual tests. It, 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 it reveals what's really in the heart. Now, in the text that was just read, the word test happened a number of times. We're going to see that the Lord tests his people. And not just back then, but he tests his people today, too. Um, The Apostle Peter said in chapter 1 and verse 7 of his his letter, he tells us that that the Lord, through various kinds of adversities, tests the genuineness of our faith. That is, he puts us through the fire to see, one, is it genuine? And if it's genuine, then to refine it. When you're put through the fire... What's on the inside becomes visible. And he is going to test his people in this passage. Now let me tell you where we're going as far as a roadmap. Um, I'm going to look at these two tests first. There's a test of thirst and a test of hunger. And then I want to draw out application after that. So it's three, three particular lessons. So look at the text first, these two tests, and then draw out the application For those of you who haven't been with us, um, beginning in chapter 15 is the first time the people of Israel are free from the clutches, really, of of Pharaoh and and the Egyptian armies. Um, Up to this point, um, through Exodus, we've seen what is the most important redemptive event in Old Testament history. That is, God, by a mighty and outstretched arm, he reaches out and he frees his people through through a series of uh, ten plagues. And the last one being the one that took the life of the firstborn son of Pharaoh and finally but reluctantly lets the people go, has a change of heart later. And then um, the, last, uh, the last big battle is really not a battle at all. The armies of Israel chase, excuse me, armies of Egypt chase Israel into the sea and, and they're drowned. It's, so by the time you hit chapter 15, they are on the other side. They're away from the clutches. It's over. It's their definitive moment of freedom and independence from, from Egypt. That's, that's where we are in chapter 15. And up to that point, God has done all the heavy lifting. Actually, he's done all the lifting. He's done everything to free them. The only thing really the people of Israel had to do at all was to splash some blood on doorposts and, and door frames. That was it, which wasn't a saving act. It was a protective act of faith. So... There you go. Chapter 15, however, opens after that big event when the armies of Egypt have been drowned. And they do what God's people often do. They sing. That's what it says. 
they sang the song of Moses. It starts off, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And he goes on, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. That is, they are celebrating and they are praising God for what he has done in the past. And then at the end of this song, they anticipate what God will do in leading them into the promised land future. So there's two parts to this worship song, and I'm going to come back to this in a second, why this is important. Um, So you have a song that celebrates God's past grace and a song that celebrates God's future grace, that someday he's going to lead us into the promised land. And in between those two events of him bringing down Egypt and bringing them into the promised land, the people of Israel are going to be on pilgrimage. That same basic framework is the framework in which we find ourselves as Christians. We sing songs like some of the ones we sang, looking back and celebrating the fact that God has freed us from the dominion of sin and death and the evil one. But we look forward with anticipation to act two in which Christ comes back and leads us into our promised land or the new creation. In between those two things, we find ourselves as believers on pilgrimage as we are in transit from what God has done in the past to what God will do in the future. And along the road, he tests us as he tested them. So, looking at the tests. Test number one, thirst. Verse 22, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So just note, three days in the wilderness and they found no water. And the tendency for Northern Californians, and then when we read wilderness, is to think of desolation wilderness or Yosemite or up in the mountains with trees and waters and streams and alpine lakes. And as you know, this is desert. And they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. It's the Hebrew word for bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What should we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. We don't have uh, fear of thirst here very often, unless you're a backpacker and, and you've been out of water or you've had your camelback freeze over and, you know, you couldn't get any water and maybe you experienced some thirst for a while and you just couldn't wait to have a fresh glass of water refreshing. But by and large, you know, with indoor plumbing and everything what it, that it is, we, 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 we don't fear thirst. We just don't. I mean, we got... Drinking water from the tap, you may not like the taste of it, but the fact of the matter is you can drink water in America and not get sick, which is not true of a lot of places in the world. That We have drinking fountains everywhere. Um, if you're on a road trip or you're in pilgrimage somewhere else, you have rest areas where there's water. You have access to innumerable restaurants and gas stations that have thirsty two ounces. You have expensive water like Perrier and cheap water like Arrowhead. It's just... Then you have Capri Sun, which is my son's favorite. And it's like you have all kinds of beverages and choices. Access to water everywhere. We don't necessarily fear or connect with 
the kind of desperation that they would have had three days, it says, three days, they went and there was no water. Those are desperate conditions. In their pilgrimage, there would have been somewhere around two million people. And God is the one who's leading. He led them by a cloud by day and a pillar by night. And when he went, the people moved. And when he rested, the people camped. So he's leading the charge three days. There's no oasis. There are no springs. There's no water. Two million people, which would have included babies and children, wives, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, great-grandfathers, livestock, cows and sheep and oxen, in the desert, no water for three days. How do you respond when you haven't had or there, there is no water available for three days and you're in a desperate situation? Well, they respond as most people respond, by criticizing the leadership, <laughs> right? Like, who's in charge of this? Like, did anybody do some logistical planning? Um, has anybody looked at a, a map with a compass and figured out how to geographically navigate so that we can actually go from oasis to oasis? Who's in charge? And it says that they grumbled, complained, whined against Moses, which by extension was a whining and complaining and grumbling against the Lord because he's the one leading the pack. That's how they respond. They're upset. They're grumbling. And this, this grumbling is more than just a, just a, a whiny voice. It's, it suggests that, that they really do not trust the Lord. Now think about this for a second. They've just sung a song, first part of chapter 15, a song of faith, a song of praise about how God's strong God was and how faithful he'll be in the future. And now they're saying, who's in charge? As if God can't provide the simple gift of water. You see, it's you're praising him with faith in one moment. At the next moment, you're expressing doubt that he's actually going to care for you. Just like the Lord brought him up to the edge of the cliff. And now that it's scary, now they're being tested, now they're being deprived, and they're experiencing a sense of lack, now they're not willing to just rest in him. So what's coming out in this test? Doubt, disbelief, agitation, distrust. It's in the middle of this test that what's inside is coming outside. It's when you're in a place of lack and you have to put your families on the line, your kids and your parents and your livestock. That's when what's in here is seen. Right? But God is, he's merciful, isn't he? He's, he's gracious because he actually, despite the fact that they're complaining and they don't trust him, he still gives them water. Like he, he provides for them in a very unique way, which I just want to focus your attention on because it's part of the application at the end. What the Lord instructs Moses to do is he shows him a log, right? And this is a strange thing if you think about it. It's like he could have just said, be clean or be sweet, but he doesn't. He says, hey, I'll tell you what, Moses, see that log over there? I want you to pick up that log and I want you to throw it into the bitter, disgusting, stagnant water. And the water's going to become sweet. 
And Moses does it. He complies. He sees a log and goes over to the log, and he picks it up. And in obedience to the Lord, he throws the log into the water, and it becomes sweet. And right after that, he says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and he goes on to say that he's not going to put those diseases on them, but rather he says, I am your healer. I think what's going on here is there's an object lesson going on. It's not just a test, it's an object lesson. I I want you to pay careful attention to. I think what the Lord is saying, because it really is... In my thinking, the only way to really make sense of what's going on here, why he does what he does, that God's basically saying, listen, look at Moses. I told Moses, pick up the log, throw it in the water. And what happens? It turns sweet. Moses obeyed. He simply obeyed me. Look what happened. It's sweet. And then afterwards says, now you, if you're willing to do the same thing, if you're willing to diligently follow my voice and what I tell you to do, if you trust me and will simply follow my voice, then your relationship with me, your life, your communion with me will be sweet. I think that's the object lesson that he gives that we'll come back to in just a moment. Just listen, if you'll trust me, diligently listen to my words and instructions, then it will be sweet. You will be blessed. I think that's the object lesson of that. Well, that's the first test. And let's just say it was a failure. The people failed. Test number two, which is the flip side, now it's, now it's hunger, right? Set them out from Elim, and I'm not going to read all of it. Let me just bounce down to verse 3, where apparently they don't have enough food, or food's becoming scarce, and the people say, listen to this, they don't just grumble this time. It says, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord back in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, mind you, side note, in slavery, For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, which is, again, a display of grace. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go and gather in day's portion every day that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. So again, they're in a place where they're being asked to lay back on the rope. Entrust your life and your livelihood at the very base level of food. Like, like, will you trust me? And their response, if you think about it, what they're doing is they are accusing the Lord of bringing them out there to starve. Like, we would have rather you killed us back in Egypt, but no, instead you're bringing us out here to kill us. Just, again, just can you think about this for a second? Because this happens all the time in the church where you can praise God. And you can speak words of faith and speak words of praise, but as soon as it becomes desperate and things don't turn out like you think, well, then it can easily lead to subtle accusations that, Lord, you are not good. Lord, you're trying to do me harm. That's what they're doing. And praise one minute, and next thing you know, they're accusing the Lord of mass starvation. The whole assembly says, they say. Again, kind of a failure. Distrust. They don't trust him. In the middle of this test, what's coming out is not faith. What's coming out is not trust. What's coming out is bitterness. But the Lord, again, is kind, gracious. Even after this accusation that you're trying to murder us, after you rescued us, which is preposterous, um, 
he gives him food. He said, I'm going to rain down bread in the morning and meat at night. Manna in the morning and quail at night. I'm going to give him food. That's what he says. And that's what he does. It's a gracious work of the Lord. But with it, he gives, and I'm just going to summarize, he gives some very specific instructions. Remember the uh, object lesson. Moses threw the tree into the water, became sweet. Here he gives specific instructions. Listen to my word. I'm going to give you food, but here's how you're going to do it. You're not going to be hoarders. You're only going to take what you will eat that day. No refrigerators. Not keeping it. Two, which means there's no leftovers. No leftovers at all. You're going to have to depend upon me each day for that supply of what's needed. Three, the only day that you can actually take more is on Friday because you're going to have to have a double portion because on Saturday you're not supposed to work. So you have to gather it on Friday, a double portion, so you can have it on the Sabbath because you don't work on Saturday. So those are the specific instructions as to how to deal with this gift of food. And you read the rest of the story, and the question is, did they follow diligently the word of the Lord? The answer is no. Some of them hoarded, perhaps out of fear that maybe won't have any tomorrow and feeling anxious. And so we're just going to stick some in a, on the back of a camel or in a tent. And it says that the food went rancid as a result of that. The bitter, or excuse me, the sweet, well, the sweet gift became, became bitter and other people went out on the Sabbath, and they decided they were going to gather food, but there was no food. That is to say, not only did they grumble against the Lord, which was the first test, but this time they blatantly disregard his specific instructions. All right, you with me so far? That was the uh, exposition section. The two tests, thirst and hunger. God puts his people in a place of deprivation, a place where they're being asked to trust a rope, to lean out and trust me with your life, and they fail. What comes out in this test, the reality of the heart is disbelief. That's, that's what we see. So, moving on to lessons. Like, what are we supposed to take from this? What are we supposed to learn from what I just said, these tests where God's people were singing it one sense, and then the next minute they are accusing, distrusting, and disobeying the Lord the next. One obvious, straightforward application has already been alluded to is simply this, that what you truly believe about God is revealed in times of, revealed in times of lack and deprivation. That's when you really know when you believe in here. Church, it's, it's easy to say, I believe in Jesus and I believe in trusting God when, you know, when there's food on the table, there's food in the fridge, when you have money in the bank account, when all your credit cards are paid off and the roof is working and your cars are running. But it's another thing when everything starts breaking down and you only have five bucks left in the bank. What about then? What about then? What, what, what happens then? How do you find your heart responding? Discontent? Anxiety? Overly fearful? Feeling like you have to hoard? What, what do you see in your life when God puts you in those 
places of deprivation or lack. And mind you, we live in a country that kind of isolate or insulates us from, from feeling that. I mean, we have insurance for everything, which gives us a sense of peace and security. And some of it is legal, as we have to do it. But man, can you imagine being in a place where you had to trust and pray for, for the daily bread? God, of course, does it to us in other ways. Like, how do, we, how do you find your heart responding when, you're, you know, when, you're, when your son or daughter wanders away from the Lord and he's still, still not coming back? What do you, how do you find your heart responding then? Or, you know, a close friend that you really love is sick and there's nothing you can do about it and you're put in a place of desperation. What is your heart doing? How are you responding in that moment of de- deprivation and lack? And difficulty, because I'll tell you what, in that moment, that reveals where your heart really is. And God doesn't do that to hurt us. He does that as a mercy to say, I know you think you're really trusting me, but you're always discontent and you're accusing me very subtly of not being good to you in the moment. That's an obvious lesson. How is it? Or to put it simply, hardship will reveal the heart. Hardship will reveal what's in the heart. How do you respond when God leads you in a place of deprivation and lack? So he's doing it on purpose. He's far more concerned about the reality of your faith than the comfort of your life. And as I said, Apostle Peter tells us that's exactly what the Lord does with us. Various kinds of trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith. Is it real or is it not real? And if it's real, then it's going to be refined through those times. Second one, which is similar. Simple obedience from a heart of trust will produce the sweetness of joy. That is, obedience from a heart of faith you're listening to the words of the Lord and you're diligently seeking to submit to them in obedience will lead to a sweetness and a joy. That, I think, is the purpose of that little object lesson. It's like, Moses, simply listen to the words of the Lord, picked up a log and put it in the, the bitter water and it became sweet. The idea in, in that is, if you will obey me, you're going to find a sweetness and a joy that they found in the water. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, man, that just doesn't sound like the gospel. That sounds like legalism. So what you're saying, Dan, or seem to be saying is that if I obey the Lord, then the Lord is going to reward me with joy. So I'm working for a blessing. Let me just say that legalism is a distortion of this. That is to say, the only obedience that the Lord smiles upon, the only obedience that the Lord rewards with joy, the only obedience that the Lord blesses is the obedience that comes from your trusting in all that he is. That is the connection between Trust and obedience is a necessary one. You can't get them reversed. You don't obey. First, you trust, and out of that trust, 
is expressed, whether you really trust him or not, that is obedience, right? It's like, I actually believe you're wiser than me, so I'm going to trust your words. I believe you love me. Because I trust that you love me, I'm going to obey. Um, I trust that you're going to meet with me every day and preserve my life, so I trust what you say. You see, your trust, when you actually trust him, when you trust him like the climber trusts a rope, it's like, then you're going to take the action of actually leaning back and, and surrendering your life to the power of the rope. That is to say, I just, this is a, a, a particular point that needs to be reinforced. We speak a lot about grace in the church as we should. It is both the cause and the motivation for true obedience. But to suggest that the moral outworking of our faith is optional. A person who believes that, to me, I, I can't compute how they can read the New Testament and come to that conclusion. If you really believe, you will want to and endeavor to follow the voice of the Lord. Because you trust him. Because you trust him. That's what keeps it from being legalistic. It's like we're actually banking on the fact that God is who he says he is for us and in trusting that we listen to his voice. And as I said, I, I think that message needs to be clear, especially in our confusing times where what was once wrong is now right and what's right is now wrong. And all these voices are telling us what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to believe, how we're supposed to speak and how we're supposed to live. And in this time, again, it needs to be said, who do we obey? Because who you obey is who you worship and who you listen to the most as the most trusted voice in your life is the one you trust in most. And just so we're clear, Jesus taught the same thing. John chapter 15. He said, as my father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments. Now that's a condition. If. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, and here's the result. My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The logic is the same. You know I love you. And because Jesus loves me, I want to keep his commands. And if I keep his commands as I trust in his love for me, then his joy will be my joy. You see that? Church, when the Lord said, you know, if, if you call me Lord but don't do what I say, what's, what's the point? There is a blessing that comes with obedience. There's a blessing that comes with obedience of faith. Do you have joy in your life? Is there a sweetness to your life? Have you accepted a false doctrine that I can trust in grace but not follow the Lord? Again, I just, it's a critical time where I think obedience to the commands of Christ is a necessary emphasis given our current state of affairs. You'll know you trust when you follow. And then the third and final thing we learn, of course, is just the, the mercy and grace of the Lord. Here's these people who failed two tests. And yet God continues to show mercy and grace toward their failures. I, I hope you've seen that throughout. That God's just so amazingly gracious to them and merciful to them. But that's not the half of it. 
That is, these events that we read and we just looked at and these failures and this test, these events serve as the backdrop as well as the preview of a much fuller expression of grace and mercy toward God's people in a number of different ways. You fast forward from this event where God gives his people meat and bread. 14 or so centuries. And a man comes on the scene. He's out in the wilderness. And he's surrounded by multitudes of people. And all of them are hungry. Of course, you know who that is. It's Jesus. And I believe all four Gospels, he feeds them fish and bread. Meat and bread. That wasn't just a fancy parlor trick or miracle. Read from an Old Testament vantage point, Jesus is saying, I'm here. In case you didn't know, the God who fed the people bread and meat in the Old Testament is now here, God in the flesh. This is who I am. An amazing display of God's mercy and grace towards lost, sinful people. You follow? But it's not just about him identifying himself, Jesus, is doing the same thing in the New Testament that he did in the Old but he takes it another step farther in case the people don't get the, the, like the substance of the miracle. He says, I am the living bread. In other words, what you need most to live isn't just to eat food and drink water. What you need more than anything else is you need to live on and in and through me. You need to take me in. I need to be the source of all your life. Your relationship with me is life. That is, it's more than just what God gives. It's who God is that he gives to us. It's all connected. God in the person of Jesus gives us himself as bread. That which sustains life. But there's another piece of it too. And that is that all of this takes place in the middle of testing, right? The people of Israel, are, are, they're wandering for 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness. 40 years. Jesus, he is led by the Spirit of God, as Israel was, into the wilderness for 40 days. The fact that both are 40 is not incidental or accidental. It's a way of connecting the two. And Jesus, he... When he was in the desert for 40 days, he didn't eat any bread. There was nothing, and he was fully human, and he felt all of the hunger pains and the wants and the desires that we do as human beings. And in the middle of his severe testing, he never complained once. He never once looked up at his father and said, what were you thinking when you led me here? That is, he he trusted implicitly and completely the fact that the Lord, even though he hadn't eaten for 40 days, loved him. That is, he passed the test perfectly. And he's the only one who has. And in another sense, his whole life was a test. Would he ever falter? Would he ever compromise? Would he ever complain? Would he ever distrust? Would he ever grow doubtful of the Father? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Even in his darkest moment on the cross, he still said, Father, into your hands. I, I, like, I trust you to the very end. 
ultimate deprivation, ultimate lack, ultimate suffering, and he passed the test perfectly. The perfect human who never doubted the Lord, despite the fact that everything was ripped from him. Everything's ripped. Friends and health and life. perfect one who passed the test that Israel never passed. And he did it for us. He's the only one who got a 4.0 on the test. And that doesn't count AP. He's the only one who had a perfect track record. The only one who perfectly and flawlessly passed the test and never dis, uh, distrusted and never disobeyed. And he did that so that he could give to us, his people, his 4.0. I have not passed the test. You have not passed the test. There's no chance of you ever crossing into the new creation unless the test is passed. And the only way you can pass the test is that Jesus hands you his 4.0 saying, you couldn't do it, but I did it for you. And therein lies the gospel. And a big, if not the motivating factor behind why. Why? Why place all of your life, your family, your children, your future, regardless of what happens, why trust him with it? Because God loves you and has come for you and has offered himself for you that much. That with all of that, outpouring of God's grace and mercy, which we get just a preview in the Old Testament, but the fullness of at the cross of Jesus, why not just throw yourself into his goodness and his love that will always be there for you? So, listen, I, unless I've misrepresented the Old Testament and how it transitions into the New, if, if, if I haven't misled you or guided you in this teaching, then how is it that the Lord is calling you to, to respond. You know, are you living in obedience to him as you trust in him with regards to your, you know, with sexuality and gender and being generous and self-sacrificing and humbly serving others using your gifts? It's like, are you really trusting him and is it really showing itself in obedience? Are, are you living in a place that's where you're just discontent and, and you're very subtly saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't know. What, 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 how, how is the Spirit moving you to respond? He's speaking. How, how would he have you respond to this? Because I know it hits home for a lot of us. And so let me just kind of leave it without a prayer at the end. And I don't know. What is the Lord telling you to do? What is he telling me to do? Take a couple moments and talk to him about it.